Our Father, we thank You for the truth of this passage, for the hope that we have, for the transformation that will come not only to us, but to Your creation. And Father, will that make us hopeful this morning? We live in a world where there is much lack of hope. We live in a world where there is much suffering and pain and sorrow. And Father, would with the anticipated and confident hope of what you will do to this creation, give courage to us as we consider our own end, and might it make us hopeful to rest in you. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. It is quite a world in which we live, isn't it? Everywhere you look, there seem to be problems. Now, I'm not talking about the problems about people who sin against us or, or the problems that come from corrupt and unjust legislation or judicial decisions. I'm, I'm not talking about the problems that, that come to us as a result of our sin so that when we sin against others and there are ramifications for that sin against us, we, we suffer hardship and difficulty. I'm not talking about any of those things. I'm talking about the fallenness of this world and living in a fallen creation and the difficulties that, that come from just living in a world that doesn't work right. I'm talking about what one commentator said, quote, Our heavenly destiny does not blot out the fact of our earthly existence and the earthly existence is in a troubled world. There is pain and misery in this world. And they are not confined to human existence. You you know what this is like to live in this kind of world, don't you? You, Just just imagine, guys, that you're going home on Friday afternoon and you think, I want to do something special for my wife. So you stop at the the store and you go over to the flower shop and in the store and you you pick out a beautiful bouquet of flowers. And you, you take it to your wife and you hand them to your wife and you said... I just couldn't help myself. I stopped at the store and I saw their beauty and I had to do something to to reflect my love for you and and just how beautiful you are. And so here is this gift of these beautiful flowers for you. And she says, oh, honey, thank you so much. That's so kind of you. And she takes the flowers and she trims off the bottom right to make sure that that they'll draw water well. And she sticks them in into a, a vase with some water and she puts that stuff that preserves them into that water sets them on the table, and all through dinner on Friday night, you're looking at these beautiful flowers, and it's, it's just a, a beautiful reflection of the love in your marriage. Saturday morning, you get up, the flowers are there, and they're beautiful, and you enjoy them all day long. You walk past them. Sun, Saturday dinner, same thing, flowers are there. Sunday morning, you, you get up and you go in, and there's a couple petals that have fallen off. And you notice a few more throughout the day on Sunday, and then... And then Monday morning you walk into the kitchen and you go, who left that rancid something in here? And by Tuesday morning, it's not only the smell, but they're all wilty and dead and nasty looking. And and by 9 o'clock in the morning, they're in the compost heap. Something so beautiful decayed so quickly. You put down weed barrier in your garden. You plant your tomatoes and herbs. Every spring, my wife comes in and she says, Oh, I've planted these tomatoes and these tomatoes and these tomatoes and and I've I've planted double the amount of basil. 
so that we can have tomato and basil sandwiches and and we just we just start drooling, right? And you put down fertilizer on those little tomato plants and you just watch and wait for the tomato plants to grow and what is the first thing out of the ground? Weeds. You've got weed barrier down. You've got fertilizer for the plants and the weeds grow. We live in a world where there are repair shops, HVAC repairmen and and plumbers and electricians and auto mechanics and, and collision repair shops because things don't work right in this world and accidents happen. And phone and computer repair shops and Emergency medical rooms and hospitals and pharmacies and hardware stores. Do you ever think about just how much time in your life you spend fixing stuff? Fixing yourself? And, and as soon as you fix it, what happens? Either it breaks again or something else breaks and you're back in the cycle. Do you ever wonder... What is wrong with this world? Why do things constantly seem to go wrong? It is because when Adam sinned and Adam and Eve suffered curse that came from their sin, creation also was set underneath that curse. And and creation also doesn't function as well as it did before the fall of man into sin. Before Genesis 3 and before Adam sinned, perfect people lived in a perfect world. And from Genesis 3 forward, fallen people live in a fallen world. And then we sin in this fallen world and things get even worse in the fallen world and with the fallen creation. And and you have to ask the question, don't you? Is there any hope is, is this ever going to change? Will God ever interject himself into this world to fix it? In Romans chapter 8, Paul gives us a picture of what things will be like and the hope that the believer and creation has for the redemption of the believer and of creation. Now, Paul has reminded us of the assurance that we have if we are sons of God and, and how we are secure in Jesus Christ and, and talks in verse 17 and verse 18 about the glory that is coming for the believer, right? So Romans chapter 8, verse 17, we suffer with Him so that we might be glorified with Him. There, there is suffering in this world, but, but there is a glorification that is coming for those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And, and it will, verse 18, he said, verse 18 says, it will be revealed to us. So, so we don't see it yet. We don't see it in each other, but but it's coming and it will be revealed. And then in verses 19 to 30, he talks about this longing, this groaning, this yearning for for the redemption that, that hasn't been revealed yet. In verses 19 to 21, he talks about the groaning of the world itself for the redemption of mankind. In verses 22 to 25, he talks about the groaning of believers for for the revelation of of the redemption that's coming. Verses 26 to 30, he talks about the groaning of the Spirit who likewise yearns for the fulfillment and the completeness of our salvation. And this morning I want to think with you 
about the longings of the world, the longings and desires and 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 anticipation of the world for the fulfillment of our redemption that's given to us in verses 19 to 21. Let's just read those verses and then think about what the Apostle Paul is doing in these verses. Verse 18, just to give you the context, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. For, because... The anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What is Paul saying in these verses? He's simply saying the greatness of our redemption is seen in the greatness of creation's redemption. Do you want to see the greatness of what your redemption is going to be like? Then look at the redemption that is coming to creation and you will see a small snippet of what your own redemption in Jesus Christ is going to look like. So so as we think about this world and as we think about the fallenness of this world, how should we think about it as we wait for and as we long for our redemption that is coming? Paul would have us to think in three particular ways. First of all, he would have us to think in verses 19 and 20 about the futility of this world. To think about the futility of this world. Notice he says in verse 19 that creation has an anxious longing for the revelation that hasn't been exposed yet. So there's a revelation of the glory of, of redemption and salvation that's coming for believers, but but the curtain hasn't been pulled back entirely yet. We we don't yet see what it's what it, what it will be. And he says, creation itself has an anxious longing for that revelation. That, that word anxious longing is, has, denotes a, a person who's, who's craning the neck and, and standing on tiptoe, just, just looking. Where is it? Anticipating. Where, where is it? I want to see what this looks like. Is it, is it here yet? Is it, is it coming? And then Paul doubles that idea. Not just does creation have an anxious longing, but but creation is waiting eagerly for this redemption. It's interesting that he uses the word waiting eagerly because it's it's a word that's only used six or seven times in the rest of the New Testament. And every other time it's used, it's used in reference to the coming of Jesus Christ. So for instance, in in Hebrews chapter 9, it says in verses 27 and 28, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. So Jesus Christ is coming back and He is coming back and will appear to those who eagerly want Him, who, who eagerly are anticipating and looking for that second coming. And it's interesting that Paul uses that word because it is that word that focuses on Jesus Christ and His coming. And what happens at His coming? We see Him 
And he is revealed to us and and our salvation is revealed to us. And so he uses this double word of revelation, if you will, to focus on the fact that this is what creation wants. Creation wants the second coming of Jesus Christ so it can see the full impact of what the second coming of Christ will be like. Now there's there's two questions here to ask because... Because Paul is saying creation is wanting redemption. Creation is is looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. And you ask the question, well, well, what are you talking about in creation, Paul? And there are a number of different options. It, It could be that Paul is talking about everything in the created world that we see, including all of the angels, the the saved angels, the elect in heaven, the elect angels in heaven, and the unsaved angels, those who have been condemned with fallen Satan. But but we know that it's not the angels in heaven because he says in verse twenty, for creation was subjected to futility. And we know that the angels in heaven aren't placed under futility. They are above futility. They are not futile in their existence. We also know that it's not the angels that are associated with Satan or Satan himself because it says in verse 21 that creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption. We know that the fallen angels are not set free and Satan is not set free. He's not liberated. He is permanently condemned. We also know that it can't be talking about um, unsaved people because they also will not be set free from their slavery to sin. So, so if people reject Jesus Christ, it can't be, uh, this can't be a reference to them because they will stay enslaved to their sin and suffer the consequences of that. We also know that he's not talking about saved people because he's talking about creation. And then in verse 23, he says, And not only this, but we ourselves, believers, having the first fruits of the Spirit, we also groan in ourselves. So, so he's setting, making a distinction between the created world and believers. And so what Paul is talking about when he says creation is he's talking about all of non-rational creation. He's talking about about things we see like the mountains and the sun and, and the stars and plants and, and animals and, and everything that runs around us that God has made that, that isn't rational. So not human beings and not angelic beings. It is what we would just commonly call nature. But that leads us to a second question. If he's talking about, about nature and unrational or irrational beings, how is it that irrational beings can wait eagerly for the redemption that is coming through Jesus Christ's second coming. And Paul here is not speaking, not using poetry, but he is using a poetic device called personification. He's giving inanimate objects human qualities. And we, we see this fairly regularly in the Scriptures. For instance, in the Psalms, Psalm 19, that we read earlier, day to day pours forth speech, and night reveals night knowledge. So, so day and night are talking. They're not really talking, but but there is a revelation that comes through them as if they were talking. Psalm ninety six: Let the field exult, verse twelve, and all that is in it. Let then let all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. Psalm ninety eight: Verse eight: Let the rivers clap their hands. 
And let the mountains sing together for joy. Isaiah 55, Before you will go out with joy and be led forth in peace, the mountains and the hills will break forth with shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. So, so Paul is using personification to say, the world and created beings are in such a state that if they could speak, this is what they would say. And it's Paul's way to say there's something that has gone wrong in the created universe such that, such that even the universe itself, if it could speak, this is what it would say. This is the longing of creation for things to be set right. And what is it that creation wants? Creation is wanting redemption. And why does it want redemption? Notice verse 20, because the creation was subjected to futility. And there is a sense in which the created world is vain and futile. There is an emptiness to the created world. It is aimless. It has, in a sense, lost its purpose. It is in a perishable, decaying condition. The created world that was made to reveal the glory of God is tarnished, it's corruptible, it's decaying, it's dying. And while it, it does reveal something of the glory of God, it does not reveal all of the glory of God in the way that it was intended in Genesis 1 and 2. And the reason the creation is futile, notice verse 20, is that it was subjected to that futility. Paul means that, that someone forced creation into submission to futility. In fact, notice he emphasizes the fact that this is not something that creation did to itself. He said, because it was not done willingly. This wasn't creation's desire. This wasn't what creation intended for itself. This isn't what creation did to itself. It was someone operating outside of creation, acting on it and compelling it, forcing it into submission underneath futility. And that someone, obviously, is God. God is the only one that has the power to take His created universe and compel it and force it into submission. Notice also that it was not done willingly because it was not the sin of creation that caused it to go into futility. Friends, creation hasn't sinned. Now, people have said um, something like, and and I I borrow this from John Piper, this is a a loose paraphrase. People have said, um, people are greater than creation. People people are greater than frogs. People are, are greater than, more magnificent than frogs. And there's a sense in which that's true because we reveal the nature and the character of God. But, but friends, frogs didn't sin. You are far worse than frogs, sorry to say. And so am I. Because a frog did not choose rebellion against the Creator. And you and I did. And so so when it says that it was not done willingly, it is to emphasize the fact that it was our sin that caused the futility of creation. We suffer in this created world. Bad stuff happens in this created world. And there's a sense in which we might say it's creation's fault, it's the world's fault, it's nature's fault. No, friend, it's my fault because I'm the one that sinned. I'm the one that's been identified with Adam. I'm the one that is connected to Adam. And I'm the one that in my connection to Adam that has brought about the curse that has resulted in the fall of creation. And when I suffer under creation, 
there is a very real sense in which it's my fault, not, not creation's fault. When did this subjection take place? It took, it took place at the fall. Turn back with me to the beginning of the Scriptures, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, you remember that um, Adam and Eve partook of the very thing that God commanded them not to, to partake of. God goes and seeks them out. God finds them. God exposes their sin to them. They try and deflect blame to others. Adam deflects the blame to Eve. Eve deflects the blame to Satan. But they are all culpable. Satan is culpable. Eve is culpable. Adam is culpable. All of them are culpable. And so all of them receive condemnation and judgment from God. The serpent is judged, verses 14 and 15. The woman is judged, verse 16. And then Adam, verse 17. These are the verses I want you to pay attention to. Then to Adam, he, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. In that moment, the ground, in a sense, and creation, in a sense, became uncooperative with mankind, became resistant to mankind. So the ground that was designed to naturally give good gifts to eat became resistant to it. So that now, instead of just stuff growing, and we go out and just pluck it and eat it, now we've got to work at it. Now we've got to labor at it. Now we've got to compel the ground. Would you, would you please give us something to eat? And we have to water the ground and, and we have to fertilize the ground and, and we have to plant in strategic ways and, and try and get the ground to give up its goods as it will. And it gets even worse. Verse 18. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you and you will eat the plants of the field. So now we go into the field and we go to get food and we say, which one do we eat? The thorns or the thistles or the other stuff? There's, there's good food and there's faux food. There's fake food. There's food that, that not only... Yeah, you like that? I thought it was kind of clever. There's stuff that looks good and then there's stuff that looks good, but it ain't good. And it not only look, and it not only isn't good, but it hurts. Isn't it interesting that the, that the flower that we say most demonstrates, at least in our culture, the flower that most demonstrates love comes stacked with thorns. That's, that's the world in which we live. There's thorns and thistles and even the good stuff. You can't always tell it apart. And now you've got to separate it out. And it gets even worse. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. Imagine this. It's August 19th. It's 107, 75% humidity. You fire up your lawnmower and you go out to mow and you don't sweat. In fact, you don't have to fire up the mower because the grass grows to its height and stays. Because that's the way God intended creation. And then the fall. Thanks, Adam. Now in August when I go to mow, and by the way, I have to mow because of you, now I've got to sweat. Everything we do is sweat. It's hard work. It's toil. 
And we eat by the sweat that we do. Notice verse 19. Till you turn to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. Friends, creation is futile. Our life of labor is futility. All this has come about because of, because of the curse that is on creation. We work hard and then we die. You know what this is like. You plant a garden. And you, you want, like my wife and I want, you want those tomatoes, right? Those succulent, juicy, you, and you want them before the birds get them? Another fall of crea- aspect of the fall of creation, right? No one has ever gone into their garden after planting and said, It's a miracle! The tomatoes have, o- have choked out the weeds! There are no more weeds and only tomatoes in my garden! No one has ever said that. Why is that? Because of the curse of creation. No one has ever gone out to their shed like I did and said, Hey, look, there's a hole. Imagine that. It, there was a hole and now it is sealed up on its own. No, when we bought our house and there was a hole in the shed, the hole grew from this to this to this. And, and, and then one day I walked into the shed and I heard some squeaking and four legs and a little long tail behind it. And I said, Oh, something has come into that hole. And then, and then there were other things that came into that hole because I didn't eradicate the mouse that came in. And you want to guess what came in behind the mouse? Snakes and squirrels. And so ultimately, we just had to strip the shed down, back down to its bare studs. And we found squirrel nests and mice nests and rat skins, snake skins. Regine would occasionally say to me before we did the did the repair job, she'd say, um, hey, honey, I, I know it's evening, but I need this thing out of the shed. Will you go get this uh, tool out of the shed? Uh-uh. I'm afraid. I'm not going out there. You go out there if you need that so badly tonight. Playing the man again. You know what that's like, don't you? We live in a world that's fallen. In fact, creation itself gives us a picture of futility. Every spring, buds come out on the trees, right? And, 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 and you see things growing and things coming up out of the ground. And it's as if, as if creation is saying, Ha! I'll tell you, winter, I'm going to get the last word. Let me show you what life is like. And I will defeat you, death and winter. And then August in Texas comes and kills everything. And whatever doesn't get killed in August gets killed in November. And then the next spring, it starts all over again. There's a cycle, isn't there? And the cycle points to the futility of creation. It it, it points to the futility of the world and what God intended the world to be. There's vanity and not salvation in the created world. Even the humanist Woody Allen understood this process. He says, I always see death's head lurking. I could be sitting at Madison Square Garden at the most exciting basketball game and they're cheering and everything is thrilling and one of the players is doing something very beautiful and my thought will be, he's only 28 years old and I only wish he could savor this moment in some way because you know this is as good as it's going to get for him. 
The fundamental thing behind all motivation and all activity is the constant struggle against annihilation and against death. Alan writes, It is absolutely stupefying in its terror, and it renders anyone's accomplishments meaningless. As Camus wrote, it's not only that he dies or that man does die, but that you struggle to do a work of art that will last and then realize that the universe itself is not going to exist after a time. And until those issues are resolved within each person, oh, he's teetering towards salvation and and the gospel, isn't he? Until those issues are resolved within each person, religiously or psychologically or existentially, the social and political issues will never be resolved except in a slapdash way. There is futility in this created world. The very existence of that futility is a reminder that creation needs redemption along with us. Oh friend, remember that inanimate and irrational creation is impacted by the fall of mankind makes us to see the wickedness and the horridness and the terribleness of sin. If, if sin is so great that along with the curse on mankind, God also cursed the rest of creation, how terrible must sin be? Oh friend, it is nothing worthy of our attraction It is only worthy of our repenting of it and running from it. And friend, we should never see in in creation a, a solution to our problems. There is no power in Mother Nature. There is no such thing as Mother Nature. There are no special powers. There are no special forces in the environment. There there is nothing mystical or magical about, about anything in the created world. The created world is not our solution. The environment and saving the environment is not our solution. Creation is not a savior of mankind. In fact, as we'll see in a few minutes in verse 21, mankind's salvation serves as a kind of salvation for creation. So many in this world have it completely opposite. They find in created world salvation. There is no salvation in the created world. Oh, friends, if creation longs for redemption... Shouldn't we long for redemption even more? Shouldn't we, shouldn't we live as if this world is not our home and we are longing for the world that is to come? Don't find your satisfaction here, friends. And when you experience loss like illness and death and accidents and financial hardship, don't act as if you've lost something that is ultimate. You have lost something significant. You have not lost what is ultimate if you are in Jesus Christ. Cling to Him. Hold on to Him. Pursue His redemption and the revelation that will come at His second coming. How should we think about the world? We should think about the futility of the world. Secondly, we should think about hope for the world. Verses 19 and 20, Paul is emphatic about the futility that's coming to the world. So he says in verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility. But he, he doesn't just say it once, but he almost says it three times. He says it's subjected to futility. It's subjected to futility not willingly. It's subjected to futility because of him who subjected it. Three times he says 
This world is in futility. He wants us to see the emptiness of this world. The degradation, the devastation, the suffering and the decay. But he also wants us to see something else that is in this world. Notice the end of verse 20. In hope, it was subjected by him, Christ, who put it there in hope that the creation also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. There is, Paul says, an end point to the futility of this world. And the end point is hope. It's interesting that Paul uses the word hope in relation to this world. Hope hope is to look forward to in in expectation and confidence. We'll see this next time in verses 24 and 25. He says, in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. But if we hope for that which we do not see, with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. And the way Paul uses the word hope in verses 24 and 25, he almost seems to be using them in parallel with faith. We have have confidence that, that this redemption is coming, that this salvation is coming, that we can rest in it and be confident in it. It's very likely that Paul is thinking about the condemnation of Satan, even as he says in, in chapter 16, verse 20, he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He says, there's coming a time when, when Satan will be put away for all time and will be a bother to us no more. There, there is... There is a redemption that's coming. And that hope that is coming through Christ and the crushing of Satan is the hope of the created world as well. Notice he says, creation will be set free from its slavery to corruption. It is currently living in a corrupted state. It is decaying. It is destructive. It is, it is in contrast to everything that is glorious. It's corrupted and it cannot set itself free. But the one who subjected it is also the one who will liberate it. And that liberation will produce everything that was intended when God created the world, Genesis 1 and 2. What will that liberation look like? Well, we've already seen a little bit of what it's like when we read in Isaiah 65 about the coming of the millennial kingdom when Christ will come and the Messiah will come and set up His kingdom on this earth and and begin to restore all things to what they were before the fall of mankind. Isaiah writes something similar in Isaiah chapter 11 talking about the coming of the Messiah He identifies the Messiah and how He will come in verses 1 to 5 of Isaiah chapter 11. And then listen to what He says starting in verse 6. In in the Messiah setting up His kingdom and He's ruling in His millennial millennial kingdom from His millennial throne. The wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with a young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together And a little boy will lead them. Who takes their four-year-old son and takes them to Savannah, the Savannah in Africa, and puts them out in a field with lions and tigers and leopards and says, go play. 
No one. But in the millennial kingdom, when God restores the creation to its intent, that will happen. Verse 7, Also the cow and the bear will graze, and the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. The weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. What will this liberation look like? It will look like the coming of the millennial kingdom when God will set up His throne through Jesus Christ and He will put everything back and creation will function entirely rightly. This is a reminder, my friends, that all the things that go wrong in the world and all the things that do not operate rightly will be renovated and restored to their original intent. Bodies that fail, creation that is hostile and hard to mankind will be made to function rightly. Colds will be removed. Cancer will be removed. Extreme cold and heat will be removed. Hurricanes and blizzards will be removed. Biting dogs and invading insects will be made peaceable. Can't wait for that day. No more need to, to, go, to go to the garage and pull out the insecticide and pray for roaches that have invaded your house. It's all made peaceable. Oh friend, do not despair. Do not fret over the hardships of the world. The end of these things is coming. And it is coming soon. All the troubles that are associated with living in a fallen and corrupt world are a short and minor annoyance for the believer. And friends, don't see creation as your hope and as your Savior. There is no hope in creation, but there is hope for creation because of the Creator creator, and because of the Savior. If you find your hope and your confidence in creation right now, it will only fail you. But one day, it will prove to be satisfying to you. It will end. It will end soon. How do we know that? There's hope for the world. End of verse 21. There's also hope for the believer in the world. Notice that he says the creation itself will be set free from slavery to corruption. So so the world is enslaved to this corrupt, fallen, decaying system. And it will be set free into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So creation shares in the glory that God's sons receive. So in the same way that God's sons are are redeemed and restored to full enjoyment of fellowship with God by being in His presence, so, so creation is redeemed and restored to its original intent. The, the redemption of mankind serves as something of a promise for the redemption of the world. So, so as, as mankind will be redeemed, so the creation will be redeemed. But, but friends, it even goes further than that. Notice he says that, that it will be freedom into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So, so not just this is a promise, and just as, just as 
The sons of God are going to be redeemed so similarly creation will be redeemed. No, the two promises are tied together. So in Genesis chapter 3, the curse over creation is tied to the curse over mankind. We're united together in this one curse. And, and now the redemption is also united. So, so that the redemption that comes to those who trust in Jesus Christ serves as something as a catalyst for the redemption that's coming to the world. Why does creation, in a sense, long for and want our redemption? Because when we get ours, creation gets its redemption. They're tied together. They accompany our creation. Or excuse me, our redemption. Well, friends, God will make everything right. There will not be one wayward Adam in all the universe. But every atom of creation will be restored as God intended it to be. And that means that all the trouble that we have in this world, and friends, we do have trouble. I get it. Things break. People get sick. Accidents happen. People die. I've told Regine, I said, I'm done with cats. We are not getting any more cats. And it's honestly, it's not because I have this hatred of cats. I really don't. I hate letting that truth out. But anyway, I'm tired of putting them down. I'm tired of seeing my wife and my children crying. I'm tired of crying. I'm tired of cats not coming home because because they become part of the food cycle for something bigger than it. I'm just done. I'm tired of the suffering. I'm tired of the death. I'm tired of the grieving. And friends, we, we have trouble in this world, but oh friend, it's going to be reversed It's going to be changed. And if we are in Jesus Christ, our trouble is not final and it is not fatal. And we must hold on to that. That's where our hope is. It's not final. The the final word has not been written. The final word is Christ wins. And He takes creation with Him in victory. But friend, if you are not in Jesus Christ... If you continue to reject Him, and if you go to your grave in a state of rejection, then your rejection and your trouble is final, and it is eternally fatal. No, friend, we don't want that for you. So so you must repent. You must turn away from your sin. And you must embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior. And you must hold on to Him as your Savior. You must desire Him and long for Him above all else. To turn to Christ is to have life and hope. And to turn to Christ, you must turn from your sin. Friend, if you're not a a believer in Jesus Christ, would you do that today? Would you definitively turn from your sin today and embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior and your friend and the one to follow? There's a sense in which this passage is is sad. There's a groaning, right? There's a longing. 
And yet this passage is also deeply hopeful for us. Listen to what Ray Ortland Jr. says about this passage. He says verses 19 to 21 simply show that if we set our hearts on Him, God will throw in a renewed creation as well. But if you look for your happiness to the world as it is now, you will end up with nothing. And your life will be worth nothing. You will live out your days with one slapdash attempt at satisfaction after another until death lays down his trump card. So think. Stake your all on the promises of God. Do not see your life now as the final measure of your happiness, your worth, your significance. This present life of sighs and groans will yield to shouts and dances. Let that certainty define you. Oh, friends, there is suffering in this world. Flowers wilt. Things break. Storms destroy. People die. But our certainty and hope is for a redemption that is coming for us in our salvation and for this world in a recreation, in a reestablishment of God's purposes for this world. And we, along with this world, will be set free. Oh, Father, might that be our meditation today? Might we long for, embrace, hold on to, and delight in the redemption that is coming to us and the freedom that is coming to us in Jesus Christ and the hope that that brings both to us and to this world. We thank you, Father, for the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.